a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Okay, I have a confession to make. Uh, I I was this close. You can't see it, but uh, my fingers are almost touching. I was this close to not even doing the show today. And it's, it's not because I'm a lazy slacker. Okay, I am a lazy slacker, but no, it's... My voice is hanging on by this razor's edge. And, uh, you know, normally you would think, well, what's the big deal? You haven't talked enough. You, you don't go on every day like this. You couldn't use a break. Actually, I probably could, but... I have some uh, fairly important things on the horizon here for the next few days, one of which is uh, my church congregation Christmas party coming up on Saturday. I have a a narrator role that I'll be uh, reading a book as part of the Christmas program, and I don't want to drop the ball on that. It's not like, well, nobody else can do this. I'm just happy they they were kind enough to ask me to do it, and that's what's something I want to fulfill. Plus, next week, I probably will not be doing this show at least on a daily basis. I may be able to get a couple of episodes in, but I'm going to be spending, I think, I believe I'm filling in Monday through Friday the whole week for my friend Bill Colley on the local radio station in Twin Falls, Idaho. And I love doing this because Bill's got a marvelous following. And, well, let's just face it, that uh, that station has a big, big footprint and it's it's wonderful to to step into terrestrial radio every so often and, and, and get to talk to a much, much larger audience than, than my podcast family. But at the same time, can't do that if your voice is on the fritz. So, yeah, there's, I don't know, there's something going around. It could be, could be flu, could be, you know, just a common cold. Although some of the aches that I'm feeling right now, not to sound like an old man complaining, oh, I got up this morning, my back hurt, and my elbows were aching. I mean, it's, uh, it's just, whew. Going to try and write it out. But there was enough going on today, too. I also thought, you know, I really want to touch on some of this stuff. So for better or for worse, I'm here. <laughs> By the way, I do want to thank the sponsors who make this program possible. And I would encourage you, if you find value in this show, in the articles that I share, the 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 ideals that I represent, those being freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, liberty, like real honest-to-goodness liberty, the ability to act without someone else's compulsion, making you do what they think is the right thing, freedom of association, uh, free markets, private property, sound money. These are the things that I stand for. And so I, I don't like to miss an opportunity to try to stand up for those principles, mainly because they do seem to be under attack quite a bit. Speaking of under attack... A couple interesting movies that have come out late of late from Hollywood. Now, I actually took the time to watch one of them. That was Leave the World Behind, which before I watched it, somebody pointed out, now, you know, this is one that's executive produced by Barack and Michelle Obama. And I thought, oh, that's right. They did. They, they uh, inked some kind of a multi-million dollar, maybe hundred million dollar deal with Netflix to executive produce a series of movies. And this is one that, uh, look, it's long. It's not like, you know, going to numb your bottom for sitting for three hours, but it's a good two and a half hours or close to it. And I'm sorry, I'm going to share a couple of spoilers here because it's not that great of a movie. It's uh, chock full of woke talking points and interesting portrayals. But the, the key of this movie is 
there's some kind of a huge cyber attack that shuts down the internet, cellular communications, you know, GPS, all of that stuff is suddenly gone. And the idea behind it is that, well, the enemies of the United States, and it doesn't really say, they, they pretend to be maybe, maybe it's the Chinese, it's the Koreans, maybe it's jihadists from the Middle East. But somebody makes the uh, decision that, you know, the best thing we could do is take away basically the communications infrastructure and American society will collapse into some kind of, uh, well, it'll collapse into chaos and looting and rioting, you know, within a matter of, of days. So interesting take. It's very curious the way that this movie, you know, portrays, you know, the, the threat and the way the authorities respond to it. And, and you know, to, again, spoiler, yep, the country does apparently descend into some kind of war because you're seeing mushroom clouds and bombs going off in big cities and so forth. And then, then they just kind of pull the plug. The, the end of the show, it's very, very unsatisfying. Even, even fans of The Sopranos were like, hey, our, our ending was better than this. <laughs> just kind of leaves you to make up your own mind. But there's another one that came out, and I just saw the trailer for this yesterday. This one is actually called Civil War. And the premise behind this one is that 19 of the U.S. states choose to secede. And, you know, I don't know. I have, I've only seen a two-minute trailer, so I don't know if there's a particular Hollywood slant on this or how fairly they treat it. But I have to ask a question because I see other people asking this too, and I think it's a fair observation. Is this predictive programming? That's the observation that, that I'm hearing more and more people make, and I don't disagree with it. Are we being shown this, and are we being uh, prom- prom- is this being promoted to us and marketed to us as a way to ready our minds, you know, for, for whatever? Now, I'm not saying it's going to play out exactly as these movies are, are saying, right? They're going to tell us all of their plans in advance. But it is kind of a curious thing that to now the focus is going here and, you know, it's it's pitting American against American. By the way, I, I have to say, it's very disappointing to see Ron Swanson, or at least the guy who plays Ron Swanson, survive long enough to become the villain. He's the president, presumably a three-term president. Huh, that's that's interesting. <laughs> Thought we had a constitutional amendment limiting that to two terms, but nonetheless, he sends troops against Americans. Uh, the uh, breakaway forces are closing in on Washington, D.C. I don't know. I expect more than a few people will watch it, and I might be one of them. But I always like to ask the question, why this message? Why is this being promoted? Why is this particular news story, for instance, being covered as opposed to all of the other ones? Now, if that sounds like paranoid conspiracy theory ranting to you, I, I can't help you. I'm just trying to pay attention. And more often than not, the things that media, be it news media or even entertainment media, choose to focus on are things that exclude and deliberately exclude other, sometimes more substantive issues that deserve a hearing. But I'm going to use this as a springboard to launch into a topic that is going to make some people just absolutely flip their wigs. So if you're one of those people, you may flip your wig now. Let's talk a little bit about secession. More appropriately, should the states form new unions? Now, this is an essay from J.B. Shirk, who, if you've listened to this show at all, you know, I, I rather like J.B. Shirk's writing. And this is a very thought-provoking column. Shirk says states should dissolve the federal government and form new unions. Now, he asks, is that such an awful thing to say? 
Again, wigs are flipping even as I said this. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> this brings out the General Sherman in some people. But J.B. Shirk reminds us the colonies came together voluntarily, and the states should be permitted to just as voluntarily exit when the preservation of their citizens' lives and liberties demands that they do so. So an appreciation for the individual states' sovereign powers and a guarantee that the imposition of federal authority would be limited in scope were key assurances for persuading skeptical colonial representatives to bind their discrete political, political bodies together. This understanding of each state's enduring right to secede from a union that no longer represented its interests was common right up until the death and devastation of what we call the Civil War. A more appropriate name would be the War Between the States or, I prefer, Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union. Then the states looked around at the carnage and realized the federal government was playing for keeps. Violent coercion, in other words, altered a well-established belief that deference to the federal government was based upon continued consent from each state's, each state's citizens. Isn't it time for a consent of the governed to mean what it actually used to mean? Now, if you think about this, and your textbooks will not emphasize any of these aspects of history, but when, uh, when the 13 colonies secured their freedom from King George III, in other words, when the, the Treaty of Paris was signed, what was that, 1783? When that treaty was signed, King George did not refer to the United States of America or even the United Colonies. They were not in aggregate. He included the name of every single colony. And there's a very important lesson that comes from that. That means each one of those colonies was a sovereign republic, a little republic, like a little country of its own. Under a federal system, a federalist system, those states retain that sovereignty. And the federal government is called into existence with a small area in which they all have mutually overlapping interests in which that federal, they will defer to federal authority in those areas. By the way, this is all spelled out in the Constitution. Anything that falls outside of that area, well, that's, refer, that's reserved to the states and to their people respectively. In other words, if it isn't in the Constitution, then the federal government is not empowered to do it. Oh, but they've started doing it anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, and that's where Lysander Spooner comes into play. Either the Constitution was deliberately written to allow this or was powerless to prevent it. Either way, though, we'll come back to the discussion on forming new unions right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you to the sponsors who make this program possible, including Ironsight Brewing Company. I hope you'll check them out. You can find them at ironsightbc.com. Also, TMCP Nation, that would be my friend John Harvey, host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. Some great swag, by the way, if you're looking for, if you have conservative people on your shopping list, and I'm presuming you probably know one or two, you might want to stop in there and just see what John has. Wallets and T-shirts and hats and things which are, I think, very tastefully done, yet also very proudly proclaim, yes, I am a conservative and yes, I do love this country. And he's got some neat gifts. If you spend $100 or more in the TMCP Nation store, he'll make it well worth your while. Also, thank you to Quilt and Sew. 
located in St. George, Utah, but these guys do booming business for anybody who is a sewing or quilting enthusiast via the World Wide Web. Seriously, if, if you need it, they've got it or they can get it for you. And if you're lucky enough to live in southern Utah, you, uh, you can just go right into their store. You can even take classes from them. All right, that said, I want to come back to this article by J.B. Shirk. Should the states form new unions? Now, he says the union has been lovely, but it shouldn't be a suicide pact. States should not suffer the deadly consequences of the federal government's decision to aid and abet illegal immigration. Individual state citizens should not have their wealth and savings confiscated by a profligate federal government that debases the union's common currency by printing money and spending well beyond its means. That's what you're feeling, by the way, every time you go to the grocery store. The fact that loaf of bread costs so much more, that's not the greed of the bread makers or the grocer. That's your government debasing the monetary supply. Shirk also says individual state citizens should not be forced to embrace the federal government's woke religion or to labor under the federal government's politically correct delusions. The states should not have to follow the U.S. government's march into the New World Order's insane asylum. So despite all that states, all that the states have achieved by uniting together, he points out that the federal government is now an unconstitutional beast that exercises vast powers it has never been entitled to possess. There's a word for that. It's called usurpation. The founding fathers would be aghast at the power-mad and violent leviathan that today gorges itself on taxes and printed money while regulating ordinary Americans into poverty. Stealing the fruits of Americans' labor, devaluing their savings, spying on their communications, browbeating them into submission, and censoring their speech are not the activities of any government that could claim to champion liberty and safeguard unalienable rights. If this government does nothing to protect Americans' freedoms, then it is not worthy of being the common defender of the individual states. Amen, bro. With every authoritarian edict it issues, the federal government proves itself antithetical to its original purpose and ever more dangerous to those it was meant to serve. Even worse, the federal government's concerted efforts to further subjugate Americans' rights and interests to an international system of of institutions are wildly inconsistent with any of its enumerated powers as set forth in the Constitution. I'm happy he agrees with me on this, but I'm not surprised. The citizens of the individual states have no constitutional duty to obey the mandates of globalist bureaucrats intent on ruling most of the planet from business suites and transnational clubs set up in Geneva, Brussels, London, and New York City. The U.S. Constitution does not empower the World Health Organization to tell people in Maine when they must wear a mask. It does not empower the World Economic Forum to instruct Michiganders that they must own nothing and engage only in pre-approved speech. It does not empower the United Nations to tell Mississippians what kind of fuel is in their automobiles' tanks. The Constitution does not empower the federal government to hand Americans' inherent rights and freedoms away. Now, regulating energy is nothing but a mechanism for regulating human life. I'm so glad he touches on this. Most Americans depend on relatively inexpensive energy sources such as oil, coal, and natural gas. J.B. Shirk says most have no interest in receiving a carbon allowance from a bunch of international oligarchs who think they have some divine authority to control Americans' futures. Intelligent, well-read individuals have known for many decades that the climate change bugaboo is nothing more than a scientifically fraudulent vehicle for empowering a global ruling class with the authority to micromanage all economic transactions, day-to-day activity, and 
population growth. By the way, that is nowhere more true than where they are able to gain control of the money supply. Central bank digital currencies will be used to enforce those climate change ideals. Prosperous societies, he reminds us, produce children. Cheap energy is instrumental in creating prosperous societies. Ipso facto, depopulation enthusiasts willing, unwilling to be honest about their true intentions have long sought to make energy expensive. Inducing mass panic with false warnings of a looming planetary apocalypse has never been anything other than a sociological ploy meant to carve out a path of least resistance for transforming relatively free markets into oppressively controlled systems. Global cooling, global warming, extreme weather, it doesn't matter how the fear fest is rebranded. What matters is that majorities of the human population are conned into handing over their liberties in return for cheap lies. After all, 80% of the world masked up, locked down, and took an experimental gene therapy treatment during the great COVID hyperventilation. The first step to convincing people to do stupid things is to scare the snot out of them. The second step is to tell them that anybody who doesn't fall in line is a threat to their health. The third step is to laugh while a majority of people voluntarily choose to throw their freedoms away and harass anyone who refuses. I think we all have some firsthand experience in this. Authoritarian wor- authoritarianism works best when the people can be manipulated into punishing themselves. Now, he doesn't back down a bit here. <clears throat> In fact, he doubles down, reminding us that Bolshevik billionaires, central bankers, and corporate titans have no objections to climate change communism since controlled systems ensure their continued financial dominance over a global population unable to enrich itself. The higher you go up the economic ladder, the more likely you will find pretend capitalists who adore the control mechanisms of Marxist Mao communism. Although Antifa-inspired leftist voters are often too daft to understand this point, their biggest supporters are today's biggest capitalists. Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, and Jamie Dimon are their best friends. Because free markets naturally produce new winners and losers, those with the most wealth have the greatest incentive to rig the game. Marxism has never been about liberating the masses. It's always been about siphoning economic and political power from the people and concentrating it into the hands of an elite few. In embracing climate change communism, the federal government eviscerates the constitutional compact binding the states and the American people. Delaware, Massachusetts, and Virginia did not help form a union meant to be subjugated to the whims of foreign dictators, central bank money manipulators, and a globalist cabal of one-world government suits. If the colonies had any inkling that the Constitution's blueprint for limited government and expansive personal liberty would be warped into an all-powerful license permitting some faraway international coalition to restrict how much meat Georgians are allowed to eat, then they would have remained separate political entities. The federal government's subsequent betrayals cannot excuse what has always been inexcusable, a wholesale repudiation of the Constitution's guarantees. The state's sovereignties and the American people's liberties cannot be forfeited. Man, he is on one. Now, J.B. Shirk says, as the Declaration of Independence specifies, whenever a government becomes unable or unwilling to secure the lives and liberties of the people, and this is a direct quote, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Yep, it does say that. This consequential remedy should never be taken lightly and... Quote, accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. 
But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security, end quote. So, because the federal government has no intention of abiding by the Constitution's restraints, J.B. Shirk reminds us that the states could and should seek more worthy unions capable of securing their citizens' rights and liberties. When despotic globalism becomes official policy, he says, the people have a duty to reject it. I take this to mean that if you're going to be active politically, I would put that effort in at the state level because your state is going to have to interpose itself between an out-of-control federal government and you at some point. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I just have to lament. It, it figures when, when we get some of the greatest the greatest trends and content and, and most uh, thought-provoking ideals to talk about, that's the day that my voice says, hey, uh, dude, probably going to go ahead and take the rest of the day off. Well, I'm going to persevere. We've got a couple more segments to go here, and I have some really important stuff that I want to share with you. So let's, uh, let's next move on to... Uh, let, let's talk about the, the pattern that power seekers follow in order to increase their control over others. Now, this is going to seem kind of remedial to some of you because you have been paying attention. But once you have seen that pattern, it's hard not to recognize it when it's being put to use against you. In fact, there's a great article, article here from Paul E. Skates called The Totalitarian Three-Step. I grabbed this off AmericanThinker.com. Paul Skate says, for at least half a century, the left has been luring this nation into a deadly dance. Like the sirens of Greek myth, their music hits all the right notes, true equality, fairness, justice for all, health, peace, etc. Because the music is so beautiful and the steps to the dance so familiar, again and again, we've accepted their invitation and blindly followed their lead. This simple political dance can be done to many types of music, in quotation marks, for it has only three steps. We've seen its familiar choreography and efforts against racism and crime in steps to preserve our national security in efforts to support agriculture and education, etc. Whatever the tune, the steps are the same. You ready? Step one, manufacture a crisis. Step two, offer emergency solutions people would never accept except for the crisis. And step three, results achieve the hidden goal unrelated to the supposed problem. If you've ever studied uh, Hegelian dialectics or the Hegelian dialectic, you'll understand that's a very clear description of, of thesis, synthesis, thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. Create a crisis, offer an emergency solution, and then, uh, you know, you achieve the goal you wanted in the first place, but you had to create a crisis in order to get people, you know, to a state where they would accept it. Now, the problem... In other words, lack of community rights. Well, he gives an example here. Um, He says, let's look at three examples in her excellent book, Behind the Green Mask. Rosa Kaur describes this three-step process as communitarianism, which claims that in matters of public policy, we must balance individual rights guaranteed by the Constitution with with imagined community rights to assure fairness. So, balancing your individual rights with the rights of the collective... 
So here's the three, three-step process. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Individual rights are selfish, harming the community. Individuals cede some of their rights to the community. The result is fewer rights and freedoms for individuals, more power for local, state, or federal government. That's how it works. The problem, lack of community rights, didn't actually exist. It was manufactured by those whose true goals were, in, were abolishing individual rights and freedoms and increasing the power and reach of government to impose their social and political visions. Now, imagine, Quar wrote, that individual rights are a glass of milk and community rights are a glass of water. So to balance those rights, you pour each glass into a pitcher. What's the result? Watery milk. Lessened, watered-down individual rights. Community rights are strengthened. In other words, there's more government power and control, which was the activist's true goal. In fact, we could see how this dance played out in the 2008 housing bubble collapse. Step one, the crisis. Bill, manu- Bill Clinton manufactured the crisis, saying poor people couldn't afford to buy their own homes. Well, of course, poor people have never been able to afford their own homes. So why was this suddenly a crisis? That situation is actually motivation for good behavior. Work, save money, defer children till you're more financially secure. Use alcohol or drugs only moderately, if at all. But no, to Clinton and the left, it was suddenly a housing crisis. Step two was the emergency solution. Force banks and mortgage companies to lower housing standards, housing housing loan standards, rather, so that uh, people who can't afford homes are suddenly able to get loans anyway. This is the old fog the mirror, you bet you can have the loan approach. Using the 1977 Community Reinvestment Act to force Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to make 30% of their mortgage purchases, the subprime loans in 1977, that that requirement grew, let's see, it started out at 30% in 77, then the requirement grew to 50% by 2000. Now, it's not just the Democrats. Bush 43 continued this affordable housing boondoggle, so the Republicans are neck deep in this as well. In 1991, CRA subprime loans were $8 billion. By 2007, they were $4.5 trillion. That's a lot of money being borrowed. By 2008, half of all outstanding mortgages in the U.S. were subprime, meaning high-risk loans. Step three, the actual results. When financial firms sold these subprime loans as mortgage-backed securities, the stage was set. And when a major increase in loan defaults occurred in 2008, the housing market crashed, taking the stock market with it. The manufactured housing crisis wasn't fixed, but the U.S. economy was devastated, which was the true goal all along by the, clo- by the globalist Clinton and his leftist cronies. But that makes no sense, you might say. Why would anybody want that result? It's because the left has always supported global government, the U.N., World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, etc., But the U.S. has long been the major barrier to that dream. So anything that weakens the U.S. politically, socially, or especially economically is a good thing. Your mistake is in assuming that the left, whether it's Clinton, Obama, Biden, Schumer, Pelosi at all, actually wants what's best for this nation and its citizens. They don't. They want what's best for them and the other global elites with whom they share a self-serving globalist fantasy. Okay, one last example. This one is the pandemic. This one should be fresh in all of our minds. Step one, the crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic was apparently an existential threat to humankind that demanded draconian emergency measures. It turns out that for healthy people, it was barely more deadly than the seasonal flu. Step two, emergency solution. Business lockdowns, schools closed, vaccine mandates, social distancing, etc. 
Many small businesses operate on narrow margins, so such lockdowns forced their permanent closings and even major industries were impacted. Step three, actual results. Devastated U.S. and world economy, again the global elite's primary goal all along, making Western democracies weaker against their globalist push from the U.N., the World Economic Forum, and so forth. And finally, the biggest example, climate change. Step one, the crisis. Climate change is an existential threat to the Earth. If something isn't done immediately, the Earth will burn up in X number of years. Step two, emergency solution. Eliminate fossil fuel usage. Curtail all manufacturing production. Reduce, eliminate gasoline-powered cars, trains, trucks, planes, and ships. Drastic restrictions on agriculture and cattle raising. Make CO2, behind oxygen, the most beneficial element in the world, a pollutant, etc. Step three, actual results. Well, Agenda 2030 is the UN's supposed response to climate change. If its 17 sustainable development goals are actually implemented the world would be reduced to mid-1800s levels of food production, transportation, manufacturing, etc., except for the global elites behind the climate change scam. You know, the ones that all hopped in their jets and flew off to Dubai a couple of weeks ago. More and more scientists are finding the nerve to speak out against the climate hoax, but they're decades behind the climate industrial complex, making trillions of dollars from green energy like solar and wind farms. But it's becoming clear even to the environmentalist Kool-Aid drinkers that those renewables won't come close to replacing the cheap and reliable fossil fuels that drive the world's economy. Eliminating meat and dairy and crippling agriculture will result in the mass starvation of millions of people. Again, who wants those results? Only the globalist elites at the UN, the World Economic Forum, the Club of Rome, et al., many of whom are U.S. politicians, industrial magnates, and big tech oligarchs whose globalist fantasies are based on the Malthusian ideas of sustainable levels of world population being limited to one billion people. They know that only a world government with unrestricted power can achieve what they call the peaceful elimination of over seven billion people. So they see Agenda 2030, the World Economic Forum's Great Reset and so forth, as the paths to achieve that global power and control. These globalists use their three-step process in every area of life to bring about the ruination of the U.S. and the Western democracies that are the major barriers to their dreams. That's the true goal behind all of their supposed solutions. So it's way past time to stop dancing to the leftists' globalist tune, to stop accepting their phony crises, and especially their crippling solutions that are designed to destroy our republic. So says Paul E. Skates, and there's a link to this article, in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Now look, you can see this happen even at the local level. Manufacture the crisis, offer emergency solutions, and then the results will achieve whatever the person who manufactured the crisis wanted in the first place, or the group that wanted you know, this solution in the first place. Oh, we live in an interesting time. And it's, it's never been more important for people like you and me to be sharp, to be careful, and above all, to be skeptical. And I'm talking healthy skepticism. Anything that comes to you from an official source requires some very careful thought, contemplation, and vetting, not just an eager, you know, like a dog agreeing to it so you can get your treat. I hope that makes sense, and I hope it doesn't insult you that I would, you know, compare it to, you know, being a pet. But some people see us as pets. I'm saying we should never, ever give our consent to be the pet of some elitist. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, I've made it to the final segment of the show. Knock on wood. I'm going to get through this one and hopefully still have a voice uh, for tomorrow's program as well. (sighs) That's the crazy part. (laughs) It's the crazy part about uh, uh, making a living with your voice. Although I can also make a living with my fingers by writing, but uh, I prefer... I prefer this part. This this part just, I feel like I'm more in my element. Nonetheless, let me share with you uh, three quick stories or three quick articles that I would like to bring to your attention. Um, we'll start with the article of the day. Since free speech is essential to what I do, I have this hunch that uh, we only really appreciate free speech when we are in danger of losing it. And for a lot of people, it's not going to be until after we've lost, you know, what we had was taken away from us, that we're going to realize what we were given in the first place by Not the government, but by God. And what we allowed others to persuade us to voluntarily give away. Either through lack of exercise or just, well, go ahead, restrict me, it's okay, it's probably for my own safety. I want you to check out James Bovard's take on whether free speech is a relic in America. I like James Bovard's writing. I've read this guy for years and years, and it's not that, you know... I, I, I'm sure he has changed his mind along the way on some things. He's he's a very intelligent dude, but he has been very consistent in his principles, and that is one of the things that has made him a very credible source to me. He's lived and worked within the belly of the beast. He has seen Washington, D.C. and how things are done there from an angle that a lot of us haven't. But he's also been kind of an outsider simply because he wouldn't compromise his principles so he could, you know, hobnob with the elite. He's been a thorn in the side to them. And that tickles me, <laughs> if I could quote Captain Mal from, uh, from Firefly. Now, um, there's another article here. This one does not tickle me as much, and it probably shouldn't tickle you as well. I, I'm not trying to give anybody, you know, doubts about the Internal Revenue Service's finely tuned system of legal plunder. But have you seen some of the changes that are coming down the pike? They are about to make things harder for entrepreneurs, for workers within the gig economy, for independent contractors. And by the way, I'm checking every single one of those boxes myself. This is an article from Peter Jacobson writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. I actually picked this up as it was republished on intellectualtakeout.org. Why a new IRS change will push some entrepreneurs into corporate desk jobs. Now, I hope this doesn't sound like a flex, but uh, I guess it was earlier this year. I was sitting down and talking with, uh, you know, some of the uh, executives at uh, the the management at at a local radio station here. And uh, they were like, hey, you know, you've been filling in for one of our guys and we like your sound and everything. Would you be interested? I I mean, they were looking to fill um, some positions at that time. They said, would you be interested in some full-time work? In other words, would you be interested in in working here? And I could see they were a little bit surprised when I said, no, I don't want full-time work. And they were like, whoa, you know, I would love to come and, and do a show, but I want to do it as an independent contractor. And the reason for that is because I don't want to be entangled in corporate America. Now, that does, if you have a corporate job, I'm not looking down on you and thinking I'm so much better. I'm just saying based on what I've seen, especially over the last three years, almost four years, corporate America sadly went along with a lot of things that, uh, that it really shouldn't have. The, the mandates for, you know, vaccination and so forth. How many companies, over 100 people, you know, pushed that on their employees? That's not something I'm willing to take a risk with. And I, I, I like the flexibility, and frankly, um, I won't say the stability, because being an independent contractor 
is not a stable position. There's, there's always uncertainty, and that takes some getting used to. Now, those of you who've been doing it for a long time, you know, you're like, yeah, you get used to it. You build up calluses, and you, you don't worry about where's my next gig going to come from? Am I going to be able to find enough work? I'm still at that stage where I'm getting comfortable with the understanding that uh, the rent is due every day. <laughs> every single day, you have to pay the rent in terms of, you know, getting out there and hustling. And now the IRS is announcing that they are going to uh, up the repayment penalty rate. So the IRS, when you are when you incorporate, you know, as in my case as an LLC, they, they want you to pay quarterly taxes, but it's an estimate of what you're going to earn this quarter. And right there, I'm like, what the heck? You're like that shady son of a gun who was standing there in the alley going, now, I'm going to need the money up front, man. You okay with that? <laughs> They're just as shady as can be. But now they're bumping that rate from 3% to 8%. Now let, me, let me just bump here through, through Peter Jacobson's article. He says, most workers in the U.S. are W-2 employees and they have their taxes deducted from their paychecks each pay period. However, if those employees claim more exemptions, the taxes deducted from each paycheck decrease. At the end of the year, though, the IRS requires taxpayers to calculate what they owe and compare it to what they paid throughout the year. If someone paid more than they owe throughout the year, well, they receive a refund. On the flip side, if you pay less than what you owe throughout the year, the IRS makes you pay the difference, but it doesn't stop there. If you pay less than 90% of your tax bill, it's possible that the IRS will charge you with will charge you an underpayment penalty, and it's conditional on some other factors. And the penalty is the rate that is more than doubled from 3% to 8% over the past 2 years. Now he goes why he goes into detail on why the increase. I'll let you uh, sort it out for yourself, but suffice it to say, that smacks of an effort on the part of the federal government through its revenue collection services to force people out of the gig economy. They've been trying this in other ways. And even California, I think AB5 uh, was one of the things they tried to, to make companies or anybody who contracted with an independent contractor treat them like an employee, effectively raising the cost. Okay, you're going to have to pay their Social Security. You got to pay, you know, their, their half of their taxes or whatever. They want us ensnared in that corporate web and this this is where you know corporate america going to bed with the federal government especially has been a very very dangerous thing for all of us so it's it's not a pleasant thing it's policy that uh, that unfortunately is going to end up costing people who are out there really trying to stand on their own more and I'll tell you, it, it does nothing more than solidify my belief that uh, I have no patriotic duty to pay a single dime more than what I owe. Not one cent more than what I owe. And even that's being done under duress because there is a not-so-figurative gun pointed at me if I refuse to do so. I realize this kind of talk makes some people uncomfortable. Well, let's have some uncomfortable conversations. That's that's a good measure of how consistent you are in your principles and what kind of a person you are and your own character. You're willing to have those uncomfortable conversations? Well, this is one of them. All right, last article. This is a long one, but it's worth the read. If you want to get a clear sense of all the stuff that's going on in our world, and I don't mean everything, but a general sense of some of the big stories that are shaping the world and current events, I highly recommend... Check out Doug Casey's piece published today on lourockwell.com. Some thoughts on files 
Islam, and Warfare. Now, when he talks about files, this is P-H-Y-L-E-S. And I, I've i seen that phrase before and thought, okay, I, I understand it to mean, like, tribe. He actually goes into to some pretty good detail as to what a, what a file is. He says, the concept of files originated with sci-fi writer Neil Stevenson in his seminal book, The Diamond Age. The book, mostly set in China in the near-term future, posits that while nation-states still exist, they've been overwhelmed in importance by the formation of files. Now, files are groups of people bound together by whatever is important to them. Maybe it will be their race, religion, or culture. Might be their occupation or their hobby. Maybe their worldview or even what they want to accomplish in life. Or it might be a fairly short-term objective. In other words, there are thousands, maybe millions of possibilities. So the key is that a file might provide much more than a fraternal or beneficial organization like Rotary or the Lions would do. Files might provide insurance services very effectively, since a like-minded group held together by peer pressure and social approbation eliminates a lot of moral risk. It might very well offer protection services. A criminal who might not fear taking out a citizen uh, protected by a state would definitely think twice before attacking members of the mafia. So don't get the impression, oh, so we're talking about uh, organized crime here. He's just talking about as things develop, people are going to discover or create places where their loyalties lie. Why? Because the nation state has been very inefficient in commanding those loyalties. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Now, from here, he talks about things like uh, what's been going on with uh, with Islam and, and how it is, it is kind of a binding file that brings together 1.5 billion people on the planet. He talks about the prospect of economic collapse. And by the way, that's not some, you know, fever dream of, oh, just you conspiracy theorists. If you're not thinking about it, you're not paying attention. He also talks about military collapse. And I kind of like the way he concludes. He says, I bet the next changes we see in the world will be turbocharged and bigger than anything we've seen or read about so far. The Great Depression, or the Greater Depression, rather, may just serve as a background for all this, just a sideshow in a much bigger circus. I don't share this with you to scare you or to give you thrills up and down your spine. I'm saying this is the time to be getting our ducks in a row. What are you doing to that end right now? This is The Brian Hyde Show.